You're listening to Art Affairs, episode number nine. Today I'll be talking to Zoe Keller. So my name's Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. If this is your first time listening, Art Affairs is meant to give you a look at and into the new contemporary art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, printmakers, shining a spotlight on the human side of the wonderful work they do. You can dig through previous episodes, complete with show notes at artaffairspodcast.com, And you can check out new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, if you like what I'm doing here, be sure to subscribe. And you can always connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Art Affairs Podcast. All right, so today's guest is artist Zoe Keller. I've been following Zoe's work for a bit now, and one of the things that really stands out about it is um, how she takes a rather scientific approach to her work, almost as if she's studying or documenting the world around her. Uh, but still doing it in a very beautiful way. In fact, she's done several residencies where she's able to commune with nature and really dive deep into observing and studying the animals that she focuses on. We talk about that. We talk about what she finds so appealing about working in graphite, some of her upcoming projects in 2020, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Zoe Keller. Zoe, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you on. Hi, it's nice to meet you. Oh, well, likewise. It's great to meet you, too. All right, so let's talk a little bit about um, your your early life. Uh, You grew up in Woodstock, New York, which um, for people that that aren't familiar with uh, that part of the country, it's it's within the boundaries of the Catskills. Yes. Um, What was that area like? Was it mostly rural or? It's very rural, yeah. So my house was in the woods and... My elementary school was by this beautiful little stream and yeah, just lots and lots of nature all around. There was a swamp across from my house where great blue herons nested every summer. A lot of cool stuff going on. And were you more of an outdoorsy kid? Did you spend a lot of time out in that nature? I was a little afraid of the outdoors as a kid, so I didn't didn't do a lot of, you know, taking off into the woods, but definitely hung out outside of my house, in my yard, watching birds and, and looking around at weird mushrooms and stuff. Uh, yeah, I kind of expected, like, I'm sort of picturing a young Zoe Keller with a backpack on, just going out into the woods exploring, <laughs> you know? No, <laughs> we had a lot of bears, actually. Oh, wow. So I was always a little afraid of bears. And I mean, like, they were in our yard, like, we'd have run-ins with them on the way to the bus in the mornings. <laughs> so. Like like big bears? Like big black bears, yeah. Oh wow! So, I th- I think I had a, a healthy nervousness about straying too far into the forest. <laughs> wow, yeah. So, what was your favorite thing to do as a kid? I mean, if you weren't out exploring, were you spending a lot of time just at home or with your friends? Yeah, I was a really big reader. Um, giant 
fantasy book dork and did a lot of drawing too. Um, I was really into anime as a kid, like a huge Sailor Moon fan. Definitely had invented like my own Sailor Moon characters. So, and then once I got into middle and high school, I was pretty academically focused and spent a lot of my time doing homework. Yeah. And what sort of work did your parents do? Uh, my dad does something with computers that I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my mom stayed home with my sister and I for a lot of our childhood and then went to school in the public school system once I was older. Okay, cool. Yeah. And at what point did you get interested in creating art? I was always really interested in drawing and my parents are both really creative people and they definitely fostered that interest in both me and my sister and were all about us taking art classes. I took ceramics classes and painting and drawing classes, even when I was a little, little kid. So, so was it something that your parents sort of recognized in you and then just encouraged it? Or was it something you wanted to do and they were just supportive? Um, I, I think a little bit of both, for sure. I, I mean, I have been making art for so long that I don't really remember exactly how it started or where it came from. <laughs> I think definitely some of my earliest memories with my parents um, of us sitting around making drawings together with my giant box of crayons. So, uh, and then you ultimately went to art school in Maryland, right? Maryland Institute yes. College of Art. Uh, what brought you to Maryland? If you grew up in New York, like what led you there? Yeah, so I was really interested in MICA because it's one of the top art schools, but unlike Pratt and RISD, it has a really generous merit-based scholarship program. So, of the of the top-ranked private art schools, it was the one that. I thought I might actually be able to attend. <laughs> um, my parents were really awesome about putting money away for me and my sister to go to college, but um, they were very clear that if I wanted to go to a private art school, that I was going to have to get scholarships to make that happen. You know, and they helped out in every way that they could, taking me to portfolio prep classes and um, the merit-based scholarships that I ended up getting through Micah were just as focused on academics as on the, my artistic portfolio. So my GPA was really important too. Um, yeah, and and uh, that was really my focus for all of my sophomore and junior and senior year. I had spent a lot of that time in a, a mica hoodie, just like <laughs> covered in paint, like so determined that that was going to be the school that I was going to go to. And it was a huge relief when those scholarships came through. Nice. Other, other than art, what were some of your uh, academic interests? I was always really interested in, in history and English. I actually wasn't as interested in science as a, as a high school student, um, which is kind of interesting because my work now is so science-based. But uh, yeah, I think if I had gone to not art school, <laughs> I probably would have studied writing. <laughs> yeah. What was your major at, at MICA? That skipped around a lot. I started as a figurative oil painter and then switched to illustration and then switched to graphic design. And the only reason that I didn't switch to printmaking was because I had to graduate. <laughs> so <laughs> my diploma says graphic design, but I really was all over the place, kind of tried out every every department that was focused on making still two-dimensional visual work. Was it because you were dissatisfied that you jumped around a lot? Or was it because you were excited about so many different types of art making that you wanted to explore them all? Um, 
I definitely had a lot of like angsty 18 year old feelings. Um, I think the reason that I left the fine art department was because I had this sense that working alone in a studio all the time would be super lonely, which it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I was also becoming more interested in politics and interested in making work that felt kind of directly related to current events and seemed like it could plug into um, student activism more readily. And I felt like illustration and graphic design with their focus on communication seemed like a better fit for for that kind of work. And my final jump to graphic design was really uh, based out of anxiety about making money after college. Ultimately, was the whole experience a positive one for you? Do you feel like art school helped you grow in the ways that you needed? I, I definitely think so. I'm about a decade out from graduating. I graduated in 2011. And I think that that time gave me a really strong like visual problem-solving foundation. And I think it helped me to develop a really good relationship with my work. And, you know, I think being able to work through all of those different ways of making in an institution that has really amazing facilities and really amazing professors was, you know, a really good way of kind of like process of elimination style finding the kind of work that I wanted to do. I think that if I had kind of gone on that winding artistic journey on my own um, or maybe at a school that didn't offer as much um, in terms of resources, it would have just taken me a lot longer to get to the point where I am right now. Okay. And so, so you graduated in 2011. Uh, what were your like career plans at that point? Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do professionally? Uh, so a, a few people, uh, maybe I think a year ahead of me or maybe in my program had been hired by Target's in-house design um, team, which, which seemed like a really good fit for the type of work that I was making at the time, which was kind of in the intersection between illustration and graphic design, pretty whimsical, um, kind of vector-based drawings. And something that was appealing about working with Target potentially was that they were in Minneapolis and at the time, and I think still there was a lot of really cool letterpress work happening out there. And I had found printmaking right before graduating and had completely fallen in love with letterpress and was hoping that, um, I might be able to ultimately find work at a letterpress studio in some capacity. So heading out to the Midwest and getting a job with Target and ultimately finding some kind of printmaking work was was the initial plan when I graduated in 2011. And I did end up going out to Minneapolis, didn't get hired by Target, did get interviewed a, a couple of rounds, I think. Um ended up getting hired by a design firm that was kind of like a Target satellite. They took a lot of the overflow design work that Target's in-house design team just couldn't handle because um, they had so much to do and and was there at that firm for about a year. Okay. In, in, in the, the Twin City area? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and I mean, it seems like after you got out of college, you moved around a lot. Like Minneapolis was one of the places, but you also were in Philly for a while, Maine, Michigan. Yeah. Eventually moving to Oregon. Like what motivated you to move around so much? I was just chasing different opportunities um, a couple of times, just moving around to be closer to friends and 
And the Oregon move was really just like shot in the dark. Why, why not? You know, I'd, I'd never seen the Pacific Ocean. And, uh-huh. and, um, after, after doing that funny little circuit from Minneapolis to Maine to New York for a little bit again, Michigan and Philly, suddenly that whole part of the country had started to seem very, very small. <laughs> and it was really appealing, the idea of getting all the way out to the other side of the country where, you know, just a whole new group of people, fresh start. It was a chance to kind of strike out on my own a little bit in a way that I hadn't yet at that point in my life. Okay. And then what ultimately brought you to Portland? Um, I mean, you said it was kind of a shot in the dark. Was it an invite that led you there? I mean, what gave you that idea to say, hey, let's go to Oregon? Yeah. So I was invited to do a residency at a little like boutique hotel in Joseph, Oregon, which is a tiny town in the northwestern corner of the state, almost in Idaho. And I also got accepted into a residency program with a really, really badass Portland-based organization called Signal Fire. And those residencies were, I think, just a couple of months apart. So I decided to drive out across the country with a friend of mine with all of my stuff, with the idea that if I liked it out there, I would stay. And um, I was in Joseph for, yeah, I guess a couple of months. And while I was there, I went out to Portland to visit for just a few days and decided that it seemed like somewhere that I would I would want to spend some time. So that's that's when I ended up moving out to Portland. And I'm coming up on five years, five years in May. Do you think that's where you'll you'll end up staying? Is that home now? Uh, no, definitely not. <laughs> I'm, uh, I can't afford a house here. It's crazy. So it's hard for me to imagine putting down permanent roots in a place where I would always have to be a renter. Yeah, I think that there are still parts of the country where affording a house as an artist is possible and this is not one of them. <laughs> at least if you're buying, at least if you're buying now. Um was was that the point so when you moved to Portland, was that the point where you started working full-time as a self-employed artist or was it sooner than that? Where, when did that happen? I'd been working off and on um, in kind of like a freelance capacity, more as a graphic designer and illustrator, um, doing commercial work for a few years before that. But Portland is where I started supporting myself off of self-directed projects full time that were more in the fine art space. And at this point, I, I do do some commercial illustration work, which is actually a pretty important part of how I support myself, but I, I don't do any more graphic design work. Mostly because I'm just not good at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was that sort of a difficult leap of faith to sort of branch out on your own and, and focus more on your own your, your projects? It was terrifying. Um, it was definitely terrifying when I made that leap and for the first like two and a half years into that transition. What gave you the confidence? Well, so I actually wrote out a little timeline because I have such a hard time remembering when all these things happened. Um, I had a day job from 2016 to 2017 in Portland, and I would work at that day job and then come home, have like an early dinner, and then start like my second shift of doing art and working until like two or three in the morning. And I reached a point where I was making enough off of the art that I was doing in the evenings and on weekends and had enough of a following built up through social media that I just kind of guessed that if I was able to put all of my time into my work, that I would be able to make up the money that I was making at my day job 
Um, and, and I just, you know, I knew that if I kept the day job, I would have that security, but my career would grow a lot slower. And I wanted to, I'm a very like all in kind of person, all or nothing kind of person. So I decided to just take that leap and go for it and see what happened. Very cool. Um, Awesome. So you mentioned the artist residencies. That's something that I, I wanted to talk to you about. And you've done several of them over the years. How did you first get started doing those? How did I first get started doing those? Um, the first one that I had wasn't actually an official residency program. It was kind of an improvised thing. I connected with this really awesome person named Alice through Tumblr, back when Tumblr was was real. And she wanted to use some of my art for some of her education work. Um, and she was working out on this really cool island called Hurricane Island, which is off the coast of Maine. And there's a little um, art, science, and leadership academy for middle school students out there um, that does, like, summer programming. And when Alice reached out to me about using my work, I was like, yeah, you can definitely use my work. And would you ever consider bringing an artist out to the island? And she was all about it. And she made it happen. And I got to go out there for a couple of weeks. And it was super magical. And, you know, then once I had that on my resume as a, you know, a residency, um, I was able to start applying for more official programs. And artist residencies are really like my favorite part of this whole thing. Um, getting to go to incredibly beautiful spaces and live in them for two weeks to four weeks. Um, that's, it's just amazing. Yeah. Do you feel that communing with nature in this way um, and sort of observing the subjects firsthand like this enhances your ability to faithfully represent them? Is that what the, the attraction is? Definitely. And, you know, in my work, I try to uh, really explore and depict connections between species. That's what, something that I'm really interested in. So being able to be in a place and to actually see with my own eyes what plants are growing near each other and what the soil around those plants looks like and, you know, what pollinators are visiting what flowers and, you know, noticing um, if I get the chance to observe larger creatures like mammals or birds of prey, noticing where they hang out in the landscape and, you know, being able to go back to my studio with that firsthand observational knowledge gives me a lot of confidence when I'm creating my compositions because I, I know that I'm bringing the level of accuracy to my work that I would, I would really like it to have. And when I, you know, as opposed to other pieces, which I make about places that I haven't gotten the chance to visit, I kind of weave those stories by doing a lot of reading in field guides and journals. And, you know, I'm, I'm bringing my amateur naturalist knowledge to, to those pieces and really trying to do my best to um, depict relationships as I understand them. But yeah, it's just like really doesn't compare to being able to be in a place in person and actually see the landscape unfold around you. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and how do you usually approach the work while you're on these residencies? Do you go out mostly during the day and then take notes and work at night? Like what's your typical workflow? Yeah, so it's varied a little bit from residency to residency because they're all structured very differently. Um, the two residencies that I did with Signal Fire are some of the most uh, immersive in like actual wild landscapes. And the one that I did with them most recently was actually a backpacking trip through uh, the Klamath-Siskiyou region of 
Southern Oregon and Northern California. And during that time, it was really just about being there and being present and experiencing that place. I did have a little bit of an opportunity to sketch and photograph, but but mostly it was just like being there and moving through that landscape. Uh, my residencies with Playa and Caldera, those are really uh, working residencies. So you get live space and studio space. And I came to those with uh, project goals that I wanted to accomplish. So I spent most of my time at those in the studio working. And then my off hours, I was, you know, exploring the the land around my studio. And then the, my most recent residency with Zion, um, that was the one where I, I did really like the least amount of work at the residency in terms of like actually producing drawings. I would get up every morning um, before the park opened to the general public and start hiking and then be hiking all day long, um, taking photos and making notes and and then coming back to my cabin at night and investigating what I had seen by reading field guides and trying to identify the species in my photographs. And then I took all of that information back to Portland and spent the next six months making drawings about that experience. Oh, wow. So, so it really varies. Um, right now, I'm really excited about residencies that are kind of close to the Zion model, where I'm, I'm really just present in the place for a concentrated period of time. And then I'm, I'm worrying about making the work once I've left and I'm back in an urban environment. Um, I have a residency with Acadia National Park coming up in July. It's not quite as long, it's two weeks, but I'm I'm kind of hoping to take the same approach with that one. Maybe tack on a little bit of extra time in Maine if I can. Um, Maine is one of my favorite places, so I'm really excited to get back there. How long of a residency will that one in July be? Um, just two weeks. Okay. And are these typically opportunities that you seek out, or is it organizations that come to you? How do you usually engage with that? Um, they're all application-based, yeah. So usually I have to submit a resume and a statement or uh, like a something about what I intend to do at the residency and a portfolio. And uh, for some of them, it's just that written application. The Zion residency also had an interview component. Um, and, you know, I have like a, a pretty detailed calendar that I've kept over the past couple of years, kind of trying to track when residency applications are due. Last year was the first year that I didn't put in a bunch of applications. Um, I was kind of taking a little bit of a rest year as much as I could to try and avoid burnout. But uh, I'm looking forward to putting in some more applications during the second half of this year. There are still some residencies that I really have my eye on that I would love to do that I think might be possible for me to do without an MFA. Okay. Awesome. Um, in addition to residencies, you've also uh, been involved in creating several publications, um, including uh, several or at least a couple of coloring book projects. Uh, how did these projects come about? When did you get started with those? Um, so I was approached by the publisher for the coloring books. Um, and that was a really well-timed gift because that allowed me to to finance my first year in Portland. And and. I did work on those pretty much exclusively for a while before I got the day job. Um, and, and yeah, the, so that's not, that was something that was um, presented to me as an option. That wasn't something that I, I had come up with. Um, you've also put out a zine. So you, you put out a zine through Kickstarter. Um, what inspired you to create a zine? 
I love the zine community. Uh, I went to zine fest, my first zine fest in Chicago, and that's a really big one. And it's really, really awesome. And um, that was the first zine fest that I vended at also. And one of the first things that I did in Portland, I think maybe the first thing that I did in Portland was that I vended at Portland's zine symposium. Yeah, I, I drove from Joseph to Portland the day before the symposium and then vended the next day. Um, and I, I really love zines because they're so accessible. They're a really affordable way for someone to kind of be able to own not just one piece of art, but a whole, a whole book's worth. So my zines cost 20 bucks, which is about the same, same cost as an eight by 10 print. So, you know, for the same 20 bucks, instead of having one drawing that you hang on the wall, you can have a book with like 30, 30 drawings. And I, I really love kind of like the intimate relationship that people have with, with books and zines and book-like objects, you know, that you hold and you look at in a quiet moment and that you maybe leaf through over and over again. And, you know, maybe every time you look at it, you discover something different or you return to a favorite spread and notice that your relationship to it has shifted. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up surrounded by books. So I just, I think I have a really special place in my heart for, for those kinds of printed objects. Okay. Um, and how comfortable uh, was Kickstarter uh, for you? You know, as far as funding projects, was there a learning curve there at all? Um, I had participated in a couple of Kickstarter projects before. This was the first one that I had done on my own. And I think that there's definitely a science to it. I think that something that I bring to my career as an artist is that I'm extremely organized and I'm really good at timelines and breaking down tasks that have to happen. And I kind of enjoy that aspect of being a self-employed artist also. So honestly, the Kickstarter was not as intimidating to plan or to pull off. It definitely had an anxiety to like a moment the day that it launched and for the first few days that it was going until it was funded. But yeah, I, I think it kind of all went according to plan and definitely surpassed what I had hoped in terms of funding. And it was really, really fun getting to send out all of those zines all over the world to people. And it's such a sweet vote of confidence when um, you do a crowdfunding campaign like that and people from all different points of your life show up to you know, even just throw in a couple of bucks to say like, hey, I support what you're doing and I want to see your career continue. And, you know, it's kind of like a, a gathering of all of the people who have cared about you and supported you over the years. So it's definitely a big, big boost. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Another project that was ultimately published using Kickstarter um, is the Intricacies book you did with Chris Mrozik. Um, how did that first come about? How did that project get started? Um, we met in Maine. Uh, I volunteered with a anarchist organization called the Beehive Design Collective. It's an ever-shifting group of volunteers who collaborate on large-scale social and environmental justice graphics. And the time that I was out there, they weren't generating any new work, but I was a part of a team supporting the launch of a project that they'd been working on for a really long time. And Christina had been one of the illustrators on that project. So um, she wasn't living at the house at the same time as me, but she passed through Maine, I think a couple of times while I was there. 
and we connected. And after I left Maine and I was just hanging out in New York in my hometown trying to figure out what to do, she reached out to me and asked if I would want to collaborate on that book project. And that's how I ended up moving out to Michigan. And, um, yeah, and that was kind of a surprise success for both of us. I, the money from that project allowed me to buy a car and <laughs> move out to Oregon. So, and, uh, the work from that project, some of it was shown at Antler Gallery in a show. So that project also hooked me up with, with Antler and with Neil and Susanna. And that connection has really like changed the course of my professional life. So pretty big deal. Was that your first time working with Antler? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What was the collaboration process like for you guys? You were there for like nine months, weren't you? Um, yeah, I think it was nine months. And then I was hanging around in Michigan for, I think, a couple months after that. Um, and the, the, the collaboration varied from piece to piece a little bit. Uh, some drawings we would pass back and forth and both work on. Some, the collaboration was more just in the terms of critical feedback. So, um, you know, some of the drawings were only touched by one person, but were influenced by the feedback of the the other person on the team. And do you like collaboration in general? Like, is it something that comes natural for you? I feel like at the time that that collaboration was happening, it did feel very natural. Um, I don't know if I would collaborate with another artist again anytime soon. The collaborations that I'm really excited about and that I'm going to be pursuing for the first time this year really in the way that I would like are with people who are working in the sciences. I'm really interested in joining those two worlds and joining my artistic practice with the knowledge and insight of someone who is working with the species that I'm depicting or you know, advocating for certain ecosystems. And this year I'm going to have the chance to work with an organization called Save the Snakes, which does a lot of work around mitigating uh, human and snake conflict and a lot of educating about how to interact with snakes in a safe way for, for both the human and the animal. And I'm going to be doing a larger scale drawing for them depicting five species that they're working with. And that drawing is going to be reproduced as educational posters, which I'm so excited about. And I think is also going to be used on some merch as a fundraising tool. And I'm, I'm talking with a point person, um, with that, in that organization who's helping me to compose the piece and who's going to give me feedback as the piece develops to make sure that there's like a high level of scientific accuracy in the way that I'm drawing the snakes, which is so exciting for me because snakes have really been a primary focus of my work for the past like half year and being able to talk to someone who like actually knows what they're really supposed to look like is so so cool <laughs> so I, I can't wait for that project to really get rolling I just sent over my first sketch last week so we have the the basic composition nailed down and I'm actually going to get into the nitty-gritty of of drawing the different species this week so it's going to be really, really fun. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. Let's chat a little bit about the uh, the themes that your work involves. So you, you mentioned this earlier, actually, um, and so I wanted to come back to that. Um, a lot of it seems to be related to sort of the circular interconnectedness of nature uh, ecosystems. 
what is your attraction to that sort of uh, larger narrative focus? This is one of those questions that I should have an elevator pitch answer for that I'm always like a little bit stumped by. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think something that I'm interested in um, highlighting in in conversations about conservation is how connected everything is and how we can't just save one piece. You know, we can't just save one species or one small area of an or of land or one small part of an ecosystem um, because everything is connected in ways that we don't even fully understand. And I find that there's so much beauty in in how species relate to each other and how they relate to the land and how they relate to seasons or even, you know, the the cycles that happen every day of um, light and temperature shifts. And that's really what I nerd out on when I'm investigating the species that I'm going to draw. I, I love reading field guides and discovering that like, oh, like this species is connected to this one because of this and that one is connected to that one because of that. And it's just like, you know, you get to to weave these webs that make you like move through the landscape and observe things differently. Um, I love, you know, I, I am gaining this knowledge very slowly because I spend most of my time drawing and and a little bit of my time researching. But you know, I love being able to be out in the forest around here and go like, oh, like that mushroom means this about the soil that it's in like that's so fascinating to me so and I love being able to communicate those connections to my audience and definitely that's something that I want to continue to explore in my work very cool um and you you seem to also take a very scientific approach to your work almost like an autobahn where you're more documenting and studying more so than just creating art for art's sake uh, where do you think that comes from? You said you weren't really much into science early on. So how did you ultimately uh, take this more scientific approach with your work? Yeah, so I think that that came out of a desire to make work that's meaningful and that has some impact on on the world around me. And I really think about my drawings as serving the species that they depict. And and I I don't like the idea of choosing an organism just for its aesthetic value and then using it to tell a human story. I want to choose a species and highlight it because it has inherent value and find the beauty in it where maybe it might usually elicit like a gross out or a fear reaction um, and to, to help communicate the role that that organism plays in the place that it lives. So yeah, and I think I think that that science communication space is really where I want my work to hang out, even though I'm mostly showing in the gallery world. Um, so I'm like, always kind of in a liminal space, space, like, trying to be in like the center of the Venn diagram for like a lot of different things. And um, yeah, and I, I mean, like, baseline answer. I think that that's just what interests me. Sometimes I say that my drawings are just a really elaborate excuse to sit around for one month of every year reading field guides, which maybe I could find a job that would allow me to to just do that, <laughs> but I don't know. 
in addition to like the residencies where you're observing nature firsthand, what kind of research do you typically do? You mentioned field guides earlier. Is that the main source of your your studies uh, when you're preparing for work? Yeah, field guides at the beginning of every project, I go to Portland's public library and check out like as many books as I can take out with my library card. I think the limit's like 60 or something. Definitely lots of trips home from the library with enormous stacks of books. And another really cool thing about the Portland Library is that it gives you access to JSTOR, which is a giant archive of scientific journals. So being able to poke around in there and and pull up texts that are about the specific species that I'm working with or about the ecosystems that I'm working with. And, you know, because I don't have a scientific background and I don't have any official scientific training, I really can only pull so much that I understand from those articles. But I love, like, skimming through all the scientific jargon that's way over my head to, like, find that one paragraph that's maybe... Uh, just like one observation that a scientist made during their big study that is an actually like really easy moment to translate to a, a visual a visual piece. Um, and, you know, that's also a really great, great way for me to just continue learning. I, I love, I love learning about nature. So, so sloshing around in these texts that are way over my head is actually super, super fun for me. <laughs> um, with, with climate change like looming over us and increasingly destructive policies being put in place and environmental protections removed, do you feel like a greater sense of urgency with, with your work or does it, has it affected like the priorities of what you focus on because you only have so much time, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah. And I definitely chose the wrong medium <laughs> to work in because <laughs> it's so slow. It takes so long to make this work. Um, I, I do feel more of a sense of urgency. Uh, I, you know, I, I struggle to, I struggle with the fact that I can't produce work faster. And I've, I've kind of had to come to terms with the fact that this is what I produce and, and my process is inherently slow. And, you know, maybe I only make 20 drawings a year and I'm going to have to make those count. Um, I think that right now with everything that's going on in the world and with November looming, um, definitely personally in a pretty dark place. <laughs> and, and there are times when this practice that I've developed, um, it feels almost like one of mourning um, because a lot of the a lot of the species that I depict will probably be gone within my lifetime or you know in in that of the next generation. So yeah, I I definitely I struggle with the fact that my profession doesn't have a lot of very immediate tangible results in terms of affecting change. Um, and there are times that, where I wonder if, like, would I be a more effective advocate for for wild places and for at-risk species if I was working a nine-to-five and then could throw all of my <laughs> nighttime and weekend energies into working directly with nonprofits that are doing this conservation work. You know, I'm really, I'm just not I'm not sure. <laughs> so um, a lot of the past couple of years have really been this just frantic struggle for me to figure out how to 
do art full time and also pay my bills. And and just in the past couple of weeks, <laughs> I had a check land in my bank account from a commercial job. And for the first time since I've started this, I feel somewhat financially stable. So a, a big goal for me this year is to kind of um, shift my work back back towards where I had wanted it to be where I, when I first started, which is doing a lot more writing to pair with my drawings that I can put on social media and publish alongside alongside the work to kind of explain more explicitly the messages that I'm trying to communicate with these drawings and to and to kind of shift my social media presence away from myself and my life as an artist and and back back towards focusing on the work itself and the species within the work. And I think that I'm going to be able to pull that off. I mean, those things take time. Um, and, and I think I'm going to be able to carve out the space to make that happen this year, which is something that I'm really excited about because that feels more genuine to, to what I wanted to do when I first started this journey of, of doing art full time. Very cool. Um, you mentioned social media and, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you, how you use social media as, as sort of a professional artist. Um, nowadays, you know, exposure and engagement is super important for sort of your career. How comfortable do you feel with social media in general? Um, I definitely, I, I have a love hate relationship. I think like a lot of young artists, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to support myself full time with art if it weren't for Instagram, which is like, a very bizarre and incredibly precarious feeling thing sometimes. It's like if my Instagram went away, I would have to go out and get a job tomorrow. <laughs> like, um, and it definitely, you know, it, it takes a lot of time and a lot of attention and a lot of um, mental and emotional bandwidth to be present enough on social media to be, to be earning a living through, through that um, kind of like, interaction funnel of like you have so many followers only a fraction of those followers interact with your feed only a fraction of those followers might actually like click through to your web store and an even tinier fraction of those will actually purchase something so so um like maintaining the the number of posts and the interactions on those posts um yeah it, it can definitely be draining at times but like the real gift of social media is that I've met a lot of really cool people through it. And, you know, I definitely am someone who's very hard on myself and like have a fair amount of self-doubt and having, you know, a couple thousand people show up and like your, a drawing that you've posted definitely does make it easier to go back the next day <laughs> and to hit the drawing board again, even if you're tired and even if you're worried about paying your bills. So the moral support from from the community on Instagram definitely has helped me to kind of like stay the course over the past few years. What about the, uh, the tutorial Tuesdays? That's something you, you had, had been doing for a little bit. I'm not, I'm not sure if you're still planning to do those, but what gave you that original idea? Uh, so I, I mean, I get requests all of the time for tutorials and so many questions like, how did you do that? And it's really hard to reply in an Instagram comment and to, to give, um, an accurate answer to, to those larger questions. So, you know, I wanted to, to give my followers what they had asked for, you know, they've, my Instagram community has really shown up for me a lot 
over the past few years. And I wanted to make sure, I want to make sure that I'm continuing to provide content in my feed that's interesting with people and that engages my audience. And, um, you know, I'm also curious about how I would feel about maybe teaching at some point. So it was like a little bit of a dipping my toe in the pond of, or the pool of, um, you know, breaking my process down and seeing what it's like to explain it and to see how passing on that knowledge feels. And, um, and that definitely was a, it was a fun, it was a fun thing for those couple of months while I was doing it. Again, that's, that's, you know, it takes like half a day to put together a tutorial. So, um, it was something that I decided to step away from for now. Uh, but, I can see, you know, maybe if I ever get around to having a Patreon, <laughs> that that might be something that I would be interested in doing again. Yeah. You you definitely seem to to put a lot of work into those. How much? I mean, you said it took about half a day. They seem yeah. super well, like prepared and polished and very thorough. So I was very impressed by those. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I was really excited to see people um, reacting to them well and saying that they were useful. And some folks even like, like went through the tutorials and and copied those pieces and you know learned a lot from from following those drawings step by step and that was really fun to see when people posted those so yeah that was a good experience awesome um let's talk a little bit about the mediums that you work in so you almost exclusively work in graphite uh, what is it about graphite that you find so appealing oh there are so many reasons why i love graphite um oh, where to start even I, well, I think it works really well with my brain because you have such a high level of control with graphite. And I love being able to get the level of detail out of graphite that you can with um, mechanical pencils or like well-sharpened wood body pencils. I actually just went to the optometrist and she told me that I have like freakishly high resolution, which I guess means I can see more detail than the average person, which was just kind of funny to hear. And I think makes graphite make even more sense for me. Um, I love being able to work additively and reductively. So the fact that you can build up darks and then erase the paper all, almost all the way back to, to the original paper tone is really awesome and super useful for creating textures. And then I love that it's an incredibly affordable medium. I mean, oil, like I was working in oil as a as an early undergrad and dang, that stuff is expensive. <laughs> and, you know, the art pencils that I buy are, you know, they're not like as cheap as number two Ticonderogas, but they're pretty affordable. And like the um, mechanical pencil bodies that I've used, they cost 15 bucks, but I've had the same three ones since I started drawing in graphite six years ago. Like they're not going anywhere. So, you know, and then because I've been working in like pretty improvised studio spaces, um, Mostly working in the room that I also sleep in, uh, being able to use a medium that has no fumes and that isn't messy is like kind of only the way that I could do that. I also love the graphite super transportable. Um, and then another big aspect that I like about it is that I feel like graphite's a pretty humble medium. Like everyone has used pencils at some time in their life, even if it's just at school. And because everyone has that familiarity of what it's like to hold a pencil and to use a pencil or to, and to maybe doodle in pencil, you know, they can look at my drawings and say like, Oh, I know that that took a really long time to make. And <laughs> like, wow, 
You must have really cared about that bat a lot to spend all of that time making it look like that. And I think that that immediately communicates a level of appreciation for whatever I'm drawing that's that's important to me. And I think that it also makes it easier for someone who maybe doesn't have a lot of art knowledge or who maybe, you know, is coming into a gallery space for the first time to look at a piece and feel like they have something to say. And I, you know, I did go to art school, so I know some stuff about art, but I, I can find gallery spaces pretty intimidating. And um, I love that relatable nature of, of this medium. So I think that's everything. I could go on and on about pencil. I just think it's the best. So, yeah. Uh, what about the, the size that you work in? One, one of the interesting things I found, especially in recent years, uh, you've done several large format pieces. I can see one behind you right now. Yeah. Um, which is a bit unusual for graphite just because of how long that takes to do. Uh, what made you want to work at such a large size? Yeah. So I I really wanted to push graphite to its limits and to try to do something kind of freakish with it, um, just to see what that would be like. Um, you know, I really like the idea that someone might be able to stand in front of one of my pieces and be relating to the subject at scale. So I, I try mostly to depict the animals and plants that I draw at a one-to-one scale, if not like slightly larger. And I think that that has kind of like uh, more of a more of a like a monumental feeling when you're standing in front of a drawing and and can have that relationship with the subject. I think like as a as a very physically small person, I've always gotten a kick out of out of <laughs> working on pieces that are very large. When I was painting, I was always that kid who was carrying the like seven foot canvas across the street to get into the studio, like almost being blown away like the canvas was a <laughs> sail. Um, and when I was working with letterpress, I loved working with these enormous machines. And I, th- I think that uh, I'm, I'm just drawn to the challenge of it, the challenge of working at a scale that large. And it's just fun. <laughs> what considerations usually go into the size of the piece you end up making? I mean, you mentioned the desire to have uh, animals depicted at one to one. Is that the main consideration or do other things factor into it? I, th- I think the one-to-one is the the primary consideration. Um, at this point, after you know four years of working at this scale, it's I have a hard time composing pieces that are smaller um, because you know I I want to be able to include everything in the drawing. You know I want to not only feature the bird, but I want to feature the animal that the bird eats and the plant that the bird makes its nest out of. And it's hard to crunch all of that detail into um, a 12 by 16 drawing. So usually the stories that I want to tell at least need like 28 by 36, um, 36 inches of paper to, to make sense. And um, I've taken, I guess I took last year off from making very, very large work. So in 20... 17, I made two drawings that were seven feet long, and the next year I made two drawings that were six feet tall. Um, and the two seven foot long drawings are some of my favorites that I've made. Um, those have not found home yet, homes yet. Kind of shockingly to me anyway, the, the two six foot tall pieces did both sell through Antler Gallery, which was awesome. And, you know, there's definitely that financial consideration also because those big pieces 
can take like 300 hours to make. So when I was making those two six foot tall drawings, I was working on those nonstop, like 10 to 12 hours a day, every day for like four months and really not taking on any other commissions or side jobs, kind of letting all of my other side hustles fall to the wayside. And that's a really big gamble. Um, you know, I didn't have any income during that period when the pieces were being made. And then I had no guarantee that the pieces would sell. So I think that, you know, you have to have a pretty iron stomach to be able to, <laughs> to get through those months, you know, not really being sure if you're going to, you know, have a paycheck at the end of all of these 70 hour work weeks. And, um, Last year, I just really, I needed a little bit of a break from that. But I I would love to make some really big drawings again in the future. I think that they have a kind of impact on and relationship with the viewer that what I consider to be medium-sized pieces, the 28 by 36 to 32 by 40 um, scale pieces don't quite have. So more enormous work in my future, I hope. <laughs> Um, so how do you typically approach these really large pieces? Like from concept to final, as big as they are, you know, the composition must be quite a challenge to work out. What does that typically involve for you? Yeah, so that process has evolved a lot from the first two seven-foot wide drawings that I worked on. With those, I was borrowing an approach that was used by the Beehive, that anarchist collective that I had um, volunteered with for a while. And they plan all of their drawings by... Um, drawing out each character and each drawing component on a piece of tracing paper, and then they cut out every character and component, and then they tape them up on the wall, and and that's how they figure out where everything's going to be. And that's exactly what I did for um, those first two giant drawings. Um, and the drawing that's about Santa Cruz Island has, oh gosh, I should know this number. I think it has over sixty species. I want to say oh, wow. around there. So I drew each species out on its own piece of tracing paper at scale and then taped those tracing paper pieces up. Um, once I had the collage kind of set, I bought a giant roll of tracing paper and I rolled that tracing paper out over the collage and then traced it again and then transferred it to the drawing surface. And um, and then I never wanted to do that again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, then I, then I transitioned to planning my pieces digitally. Um, the two six foot tall drawings I planned on, uh, my little, uh, laptop. It's like the smallest Mac laptop that you can buy. And a definite challenge with that was that I could only get so much detail into that Photoshop sketch. Um, and then after those pieces, I was able to upgrade to like a big desktop and I bought a Wacom tablet. I think you say it Wacom. Um, and now I, I plan out my drawings in a really high level of detail on Photoshop and then I project the drawings onto the paper. Mm. So when I, when I get around to doing another really big piece, um, that's definitely how I'm going to approach it. And, and, Doing that planning digitally and projecting it for the mid-sized pieces cuts out about like three to five days of work oh, because wow. it takes so much longer to position everything if you are starting on the paper. Um, you know, because Photoshop has all these handy tricks like repositioning things and flipping things and um, being able to scale things up and down and 
uh, it's, it's pretty funny how, you know, like, I think because my drawings are so precise and so detailed, some people think that I know what I'm doing when I, when I like approach a drawing and I absolutely don't like the drawings change so much from my initial idea and the first sketch to what they actually look like when I'm ready to project them. Is, is that just figuring it out as you begin to see it materialize and then your ideas change or what, what causes them to change so much? Yeah, it's kind of like a, it's a real back and forth process. So, you know, I'll go into a project knowing what I want to be in the drawings. I have all the ingredients. Um, and then as I start to try to piece everything together on the page, um, I usually just like take sort of a shot in the dark and say like, okay, I think I want the bird over here in this position. And I think I want, you know, this plant over here and maybe a couple of rocks there. And then I'll um, go into my reference photos and I'll, you know, find photos that sort of like fit with the way that I want everything to be positioned. And then I'll go back and refine the drawing based on the photos. And it's kind of like this back and forth process to, to make everything fit in the drawing and then also look natural. Like, um, you know, when I first sketch out a bird on a page, I'm kind of like referencing my internal library of how I think birds work. And that library is often wrong um, <laughs> uh, because I'm trying to depict species very faithfully. I'm trying to make sure that the, the way that they're positioned is faithful to the way that they actually um, move. So, um, you know, I might put a bird in a particular position, but then as I'm going through images, I might realize like, oh, like they would never actually sit in a tree in, in that pose. And really what's a better representation of how they move is to have their, you know, wings in this very particular place. Um, so, you know, it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of editing and a lot of, a lot of reworking things. And, you know, I can get pretty far into a sketch and then realize that something is like completely wrong in terms of scale or makes absolutely no sense. Or I like forgot an animal's leg or something, you know, important. <laughs> uh, when you're not like traveling for a residency and, and you're at home, do you have a, a dedicated studio space away from your home? Um, right now I have a pretty sweet setup. I have a, a room and a house and then the shed in the backyard has been turned into a little studio space. So this is really like my dream setup where my commute is four feet, <laughs> but um, <laughs> my my workspace is definitely very separate from the space that I, you know, kind of unwind and fall asleep in. Um, but for a lot of years, I've been trying to cram, you know, like a twin bed and my desk into an eight foot by 10 foot room and making that work. So I, I feel very lucky at the moment to have this, this space. Uh, what is your, what is your typical studio practice now? Um, you know, when you're at home? Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to work, uh, five to six days a week. I'm trying to do a better job of taking full days off. So when I am working, I'm working like 10 to 11 hour days. I like to be in my studio, early in the morning between eight and nine. And then I usually take a break in the middle of the day to, you know, do whatever needs to be done out in the world, run to the post office. Um, running has become a really important part of how I stay sane with all of this, like extremely sedentary <laughs> practice. Um, and, and then I usually work pretty late into the evening also. 
So it's a lot of long days still, but uh, I've I've really gotten better over the past year at taking those days off, and I think that that is really doing a lot for my mental health and also helping my workout too. So I would recommend days off to anyone who's not allowing themselves to take them. Do you feel pretty comfortable with what your current like work life balance is is like? It still feels like a lot. Um, you know, I, I was working even more hours when I first started and, you know, there's a, there's a seasonal aspect to being a self-employed artist also. Um, you know, I, I make my living with the gallery work, but then I also have the web store and do commissions and do commercial work. And it seems like all of the side hustles really pick up in between late October and December. So, um, I worked 55 hours a week for most of last year, but then towards the end of the year, it was a lot of 80-hour work weeks. Wow. Just trying to get all those Christmas orders out and and get prepped for Christmas uh, craft fairs. And and for some reason, I pretty much exclusively get big commercial jobs right around Christmas too. <laughs> so so getting those done. And I would really love to be at the point where I'm I'm working that 40-hour work week. I, I did a couple of those last year, and oh my gosh, it feels like you have so much free time when you work 40 hours a week. It's crazy. <laughs> like <laughs> that would be really nice to to be at that at that at some point, and then I can use the the extra time to be outside more, which would be really really awesome. Yeah, I can imagine that 80-hour work weeks, even 60-hour work weeks can lead to burnout and just feeling like, you know, like you don't want to do it anymore, right? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, For those first couple of years when I was trying to, to do the art thing full time, there were a lot of 2 a.m. Google searches for like, what jobs can I do <laughs> that aren't this? <laughs> <laughs> What's the uh, what's the artist community like there in Portland? I feel like there's a lot of artists that that I personally follow from that area. Do, do you have much experience with the artist community around there? Um, I mean, Portland has a really incredible, incredible mix of artists who are making this kind of nature influenced work, um, and it's been really fun getting to see them at gallery openings. You know, a a part of the insane work schedule that I've had over the past few years and that a lot of other artists in Portland have to have in order to afford to live here is that it's it's hard to maintain relationships and to build community when you're like locked in your room by yourself like 10 <laughs> hours a day. So um, a part of a part of me trying to work towards having even more of a work-life balance is that I would really love to be more present in that community. And um, I'm also curious about how it might be possible to uh, be getting more critical feedback on my work also. Um, there are so many awesome artists here. It would be fun to have some kind of crit night or something. <laughs> Do you have the opportunity to go to very many uh, exhibitions? Um, I, I try to go to all of the openings at Antler for sure. Um, I popped up to Seattle once to go to a bunch of openings there, and that was really fun. Um, this year, I would like to actually attend uh, some of these exhibitions that I've been participating in for a few years. So I'm going to be showing a couple of pieces at the National Museum of Wildlife Arts annual show and sale. And I've done that show for a few years, and I've never had the chance to fly out. Um, I love to, to fly out to that one. And then um, I'm also going to be showing with 
scope Miami Beach again with Antler, and this will be my third year doing that. And I think I'm going to try to swing going down there, although the, you know, I'm super introverted. <laughs> I think that's pretty obvious. And um, part of the reason that I haven't budgeted uh, the time or, you know, flight and hotel money to go do that is that I'm like low-key terrified of that environment. <laughs> um, but I, I think that I would like to go. I think I'd like to go this year. And in future years, it would be really fun to go down to San Francisco and LA and to check out these galleries that I've been following on social media for a long time, some that I've had the chance to show with um, a handful of times in group shows. You know, the West Coast has so much going on that's so fascinating. It would be It would be nice to be able to be a little bit more present physically in these spaces and to be meeting people in person. Yeah. What do you have coming up in 2020? Any, any, I mean, you mentioned there's a residency that you have in July, but any other projects that you have coming up that you can share? Um, I'll be showing with Antler in June. That's my next show. And that's what I'm working on right now. And uh, yeah, then the residency in July, a um, couple pieces at the National Museum of Wildlife Art Show and Miami in December. So that's that's a pretty full year. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And it's uh, it's nice. This year is the first year that I have everything kind of planned out 12 months in advance. And you know, I'm such a planner. It's it's really great to be able to, to see how that's going to unfold. And this is the first year where I'm taking the first six months of the year to make all of that gallery work in one go. And I actually work... I'm a I'm a better sprinter than I am a long distance runner in terms of like making work. So I'm really excited to be able to to make all of these drawings kind of simultaneously. Awesome. Awesome. Well, before we uh, end, where can people find you online? Um, I'm at zoekeller.com. And then on Instagram, I'm at zoekellerart. And I do have Facebook, a Facebook page, which is also Zoe Keller Art, which does not get as much love as my Instagram page. And I'm trying to post again to Twitter, but I can't, I don't understand Twitter and I don't remember <laughs> what my handle is. So maybe not the best to point people there. Um, yeah, th- those are all the places. Awesome. So one last question and you, you may know what I'm going to ask you because I think yeah. you've listened to a few of the shows. <laughs> Been thinking about this a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show? I think I'm going to do the thing that I've heard everyone else do so far where I sneak in a bunch of artists uh, and a bunch don't of just them, give right? you one. <laughs> yeah. But, um, the, the three artists out there right now who I look to the most are um, Lisa Erickson, Tiffany Bozick, and Inkdwell Studios, um, Jane Kim at Inkdwell. They're three super badass ladies also working in the nature art space. And I've gotten to see all of their work in person, and I've gotten a little bit of a chance to talk with all of them, but I would love to hear an, an in-depth um conversation about how they work and and about their ideas about art making so that those would be really cool people to hit up zoe thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today and and just for being supportive of the show in general i I really appreciate it oh i i love what you're doing like this has been so fun to listen to these episodes as they come out like i feel like instagram does a lot to kind of make artists seem more like people but i think your podcast has really taken it to the next level and i'm genuinely confused about how I got in this lineup like there's so many artists that you've interviewed so far who I've been following for years and I'm just like totally starstruck by so this is really cool thanks a lot
So that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Zoe. One of the things that I really appreciate about Zoe's work is the way that she focuses more on the interconnectedness of nature and ecosystems as a whole, rather than a single individual species. And what she said about wanting to highlight the fact that you can't just have one without all the others really resonated with me. Um, nature and, and really the world as a whole is highly interconnected and everything and everyone is intertwined, part of this incredible system. And you can't start removing pieces that maybe you don't like or don't care as much about without also affecting the things that you do love and care about. Zoe's passion for conservation and her desire to use her artwork in ways that highlight and draw attention to these important ideas is something that I respect and appreciate immensely. Uh, She's a fine example of someone who's using her unique talents and abilities to try and affect the world in a positive way. So thanks again to Zoe for joining me today, and thank you for checking out the show. I'm super grateful for your support. Feel free to shoot me an email if you have any suggestions for the show, or if there's a guest you want me to try and have on. I'd love to hear any feedback you might have for me. You can contact me through my website at artaffairspodcast.com, and like I said at the front of the show, you can go there to check out any previous episodes. You can also find the show on Instagram and Facebook at artaffairspodcast. And last but not least, if you're on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and or review the show. It's a really great way to help get the word out. So until next time, be good to yourself and be good to each other.